the nights are drawing in. Everybody's sick. It's time to do another podcast. I would say past time. It's past time, past yeah. Past time. We already pre-trailed this one for uh, people who listen to the bonus episodes, but we're going to do a show or possibly two shows, depending on how long we talk for, on Delirious New York, the celebrated first book by the architect Rem Koolhaas. It is just by him officially, isn't it? Although it's just he has by him. Heavily acknowledged yeah, there assistance. Are, yes, there are quite a few there are quite a few other people involved and we can unpick quite a lot of that. And I think also there are some important sounding boards and some important people whose ideas he's bouncing off. Yeah. Um, but all of that is part of the story. This podcast is called About Buildings and Cities. I'm Luke Jones. I'm George Kinjal. Thanks for joining us. Who knows which number of episode this is, but it's quite high. Over 100. Over 100. But, but low over 100. We had 2 million listens. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. So... Well, this is an interesting topic. So it's Delirious New York, which came out in 1978 and was based on Rome Coolhouse's and other people's work uh, for the preceding, well, probably four years, four or five years, something like that. It's a very famous work. I hadn't read it before. I guess you probably had. Yeah, I definitely read it at university and I remember really enjoying it. Rem is one of the great like characters of architecture, I would say, in the post-Le Corbusier era. He's kind of as much the main character of architectural discourse as anyone is, really. And he projects that character through but his built work, but also through, but particularly through his writing, which is his kind of way of framing what his work is and what it what it's all about, really. And to summarise what Delirious New York is, it claims to be a retroactive manifesto for Manhattan. That's the that's the framing which it gives itself. And what it actually is is a kind of episodic, idiosyncratic history of a kind of Manhattan which touches on different eras but who, the focus of which is a little bit right at the end of the 19th century and about the first third of the 20th century broadly the age the coming of age of the skyscraper or well, that's certainly the kind of culmination of the book as a phenomenon and and the how it is that this kind of unique and, and extraordinary urban condition which is manhattan uh comes to be uh, and what are some ways that architects specifically should think about what New York architecture really is? So, like his, the idea of the retroactive manifesto is New York architecture is built by people who weren't very interested in theorizing very much about what they were doing, and but that it contains a whole series of implicit principles, um, and that those are the ones which he's um, he's kind of setting out or claiming to set out to explain and um, to illustrate in the book. I, uh, you know, and so it, although it's technically a history book, like you can't really, if you treat it really as a history book, you'd like will start to pick enormous holes in it all over the place. It's, and that's not, that's not the, it's the not best a way of looking at it. It's not a history book in two ways. It's not at all comprehensive. It's extremely partial in terms of the things it looks at. And it's also extremely partial in its sourcing. So just to say, should we say something about, like, the Koolhaas uh, trajectory? Uh, he'd been at the AA in the 60s, and then I think kind of graduated around 1970-ish, I think. Uh, I don't know. 
Um, yeah, the earliest date you see on his projects is 1969. And yeah. then, um, which is this voluntary prisoners of architecture, let's build the Berlin Wall. No, they're two different things. So the 69 is his thesis project, which is the Berlin Wall as architecture. Yeah. And then voluntary prisoners was a kind of adaptation of it in 1971, which was for a Casabella competition. Yeah. So it's a kind of, yeah. I think we'll probably talk about there. It's a weird project. And I think we might talk about it on the bonus. Um, yeah. I think we have spoken about it before, but yeah. we all can speak about it's very, it again. It's very peculiar. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, yeah, let's, um, let's look at that one. It's a good, it's funny. Like he, he obviously, he was obviously working very hard and doing lots of things and uh, voluntary prisoners and then later kind of edits what he wants to present of his, um, of his career and voluntary prisoners is one of the ones which kind of makes the cut in uh it's in um his later retrospective sml xl and um uh yeah he obviously thinks that it kind of got to the got to the heart of something important um he also like in the internet's full of like early um rem ephemera uh ephemera ephemera and one is there's an interesting lecture that he gave um on Russian utopian architecture of the twenties, which you can see it's on YouTube, which is, I think is given to an audience of AA students, possibly when he was teaching there. Um, and in particular, he talks about Ivan Leonidov's scheme competition proposal for Magnitogorsk, uh, which was to be a new industrial city built on a linear model. And it's interesting that his, I think just, I mean, he's a very engaging lecturer, but also the sort of spin he puts on it in the lecture is is really interesting to me because, like, the linear city can be about all kinds of things. Like, it's it's sort of an attempt to completely abolish the geography of the city as an impediment to creating a classless society. Well, but, that's one thing. It can yeah. Be. <laughs> uh, well, for him, for him, they're always city as diagram. Yeah, for him, what it's really what he really focuses on are, is that the scheme is full of these like athletics tracks and. The flats have all got like bathrooms and showers and his kind of gloss on it is all about the like enjoyment of like physical activity and uh, and pleasure. It's like a very hedonistic reading of I think it, what is often understood in, in quite a kind of like conceptual and abstruse sort of way. It's extremely like embodied and it's, it's extremely about like enjoyment uh, and this kind of I find that kind of interesting. And then he did, um, part, I think partly this book was written while he was working with uh, the architect um, O.M. Ungers at Cornell. And I believe that when they were there, they were actually working on this project about Berlin, which is, uh, I might be mangling that. because. But anyway, this is a project which they did together called Berlin Green Archipelago, which is kind of a project about the problem of Berlin as a shrinking city. So at that time, so West, we should say West Berlin um, at that, uh, is what they were talking about, which at that time it is like a political island inside um, the German Democratic Republic and had been very heavily bombed and was like significantly depopulated. And what they, their kind of proposal in the bits that I've seen of it is about kind of condensing, having, making it almost like a, a kind of like nodal network of these slightly historicized like in terms of their like urban form like v villages or towns kind of condensing compressing creating this like intensified urbanity in these physical kind of islands 
within a, a sort of green network. So it's it's very much like a a slightly postmodern sp- spin on the classically like modernist vision of the of the future city as being a kind of green landscape with um with these uh you know towers and other things in it in it um the, the radiant city and all that kind of thing so new york it's a large city on the eastern coast of the united states of america which is a country that you might have heard of the intro of the book basically does it like it gives you like a few important episodes in the history of and also in the evolution of of a particular type of idea of new york so it's not just the history of the city yeah it obviously like new york was founded by the dutch and then latterly taken over by the english and renamed and the earliest sort of artifact of the idea of new york which he presents is this this like bird's eye plan of new amsterdam as was which he notes is like a complete fabrication which doesn't seem to have i don't i mean i don't know if this is like a, a historically valid reading but he's proposes that this plan is just completely made up and it's the, just an image to sell to people in Europe. Yeah, a more a more energetic uh, set of reviewers could have gone through he makes quite a number of historical assertions yeah. which feel often sketchy. But I haven't worked out whether they're true. We're not fact we're not fact checkers. That's not that's not <laughs> This that. is the first one which is he essentially says this is a map. Yeah. Not of New Amsterdam which it purports to be, but yeah. of, as people wanted New Amsterdam to be. Yeah. Which And it looks like a large, prosperous European city. It's covered in hills. Yeah. It yeah. also is, I mean, presumably it's notionally the tip of Manhattan, but the bottom of the image is sea, and then above that is land. I mean, I'm, I'm broadly, you know, prepared to believe this, <laughs> this reading. I, do, I think... I mean, I was sort of suggesting there are things about it which don't immediately lend itself to seeming like the city is as it's known today. For him, it's really important, really, really believing in something and kind of making it come true through sheer like fantasy and sort of bloody mindedness. Yeah, is like like, that's that's one of of his his key ideas. Like, okay, this is what they wanted it to be like, so this is what they were going to make it like. So here's a little uh, early quote, which I think also like shows a little bit of the tone that I was talking about. In 1626, Peter Minuit buys the island Manhattan for $24 from, in quotation marks, the Indians. But the transaction is a falsehood. The the sellers do not own the property. They do not even live there. They are just visiting. In 1807, Simeon de Witt, Governor Morris and John Rutherford are commissioned to design the model that will regulate the final and conclusive occupancy of Manhattan. Very quickly, it segues to this other, this like great event in the history of New York urbanism, which is the laying out of the grid, which was done at the beginning of the of the nineteenth century. Not uniquely, but very remarkably, is like it's a uh, it's very optimistic about um <laughs> about how much about how like how much the city is going to grow and how much it's going to continue growing. Uh, so the the time that it's planned out, the city is really this very tiny bit right at the bottom like most of the grid is most like most of its farms again is this next episode in this history of dreaming big being being audacious having yeah he calls it the most courageous act of prediction in western civilization essentially like its function is to make it easier to buy and sell property to kind of work out what people have and like the you know 
to lay things out and have have a kind of way of packaging it all up the other thing about it is also there is a text which accompanies the commissioner's report which proposes this grid um which he does a little bit of kind of close reading of they essentially say some people might say that we need to put in lots of parks and have kind of spacious boulevards and um, maybe big circuses and things, and in general follow a bit more of a French sort of model. But because we've got such a big river next to us, we don't need all of that. We can just be extremely pragmatic. And this, like, extreme kind of pragmatism is a, is another... Extreme pragmatism is, like, another thematic of, uh, of the kind of Manhattan like Manhattanism as ideology in the way that he wants to characterize it when people say they're being extremely pragmatic often he thinks they're secretly doing something extremely utopian and actually like like extremely kind of fantastical um yes it's it's that it's the inversion of he likes to see it as a sort of inversion of how i guess he sees modernist theory which is that you propose something extremely theoretical and then kind of work back from that yeah and he sees the way that manhattan works out as you enact something in a utopian spirit justifying it on purely practical grounds yeah like like as if you can't say as if it's uh forbidden to say yeah we are doing this for beauty and spirit yeah So let me just read this little quote. The grid is, above all, a conceptual speculation. In spite of its apparent neutrality, it implies an intellectual programme for the island. In its indifference to to topography, to what exists, it claims the superiority of mental construction over reality. The plotting of its streets and blocks announces that the subjugation, if not obliteration, of of nature is its true ambition. All blocks are the same. Their equivalence invalidates at once all the systems of articulation and differentiation that have guided the design of traditional cities. The grid makes the history of architecture and all previous lessons of urbanism irrelevant. It forces Manhattan's builders to develop a new system of formal values, to invent strategies for the distinction of one block from another. The grid's two-dimensional discipline also creates undreamt of freedom for three-dimensional anarchy. With its imposition, Manhattan is forever immunised against any further totalitarian intervention. In the single block, the largest possible area that can fall under architectural control, it develops a maximum unit of the urbanistic ego. Okay, so there he's contending yeah. that, firstly, this is a utopian project conquer nature by applying a grid to a city. Okay, sure. I mean, people have been doing that, I would say, yeah. at this point in history for 5,000 years. But, yeah. Um, Certainly, un- uncontroversially, for two and a half thousand years by yeah. that point. Fine. There are some different things, which is that they lay out all of the land on the island in this grid. Yeah, and that this he doesn't say entirely whether this is intentional or not means that it's kind of democratic because yeah, you don't have any Beaux Arts interventions. You don't yeah. have any great cut throughs. You There's can't no, have any vast yeah. palaces. You can't have any vast yeah. I mean, this is all a little bit before the kind of great Beaux Arts like planning of the nineteenth century, but but yeah, that like the, like the, at the core of it, there is like a real observation, which is is that yeah, it's a, an unhierarchical plan, um, and it's one that yeah, it's extremely. I don't know. Is it even pragmatic? It's extremely like literal, literal, mer- <laughs> sort of mercantile. It's very literal. Um, yeah. 
Value yeah, sure. for money. I, I guess you've got to there a thing that runs through the book, which is that yeah. he is enjoying doing close readings and does lots of close readings yeah. and does them in a paranoid way where he yeah. obviously takes the close reading further yeah. than there's stuff to go. Yeah. Then there's like evidence for. And like then, we don't have yeah. it. We, I mean, definitely that whole, you're not quite sure with all the things he's describing in terms of to all the things that he's saying are good about the grid. You're not quite yeah. sure where he thinks the intention stopped and what he thinks is coincidental. Uh, like, it seems very unlikely to me that, I mean, I don't think even Rem Coolhouse would defend the line that this grid is there to prevent uh, a future sort of architecture from existing. It's kind of like that all the way through. He, like, reads in an increasingly paranoid or detailed sense, a yeah. closer and closer reading, to provide a sort of spiritual core. Yeah. Uh, and I guess you just have to do what you want with that. But yeah. it's, uh, like, at one level, his propositions are slightly absurd, and at the other level, they're kind of... They're provocational. They're so you're yeah. like... They're okay, really... sure. Okay, that's that that probably, and it's all over quite quickly as well. Which is it's nice. all kind of in, I find it's you either like this kind of stuff or you don't. I really I really enjoy it. it this this f yeah, as you say, like paranoid, totally over the top reading. And then the other thing which is doing obviously is this is what the architects of things like the Radiant City or the Linear City said they were doing, and his kind of like subversion is that actually this is what Manhattan was really doing. They just weren't talking about it. Well, I mean, of, he know. says a retrospective manifesto, right? Yeah. So he's writing their intentions for them. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um, and uh, then he has a little bit on on Central Park, which was was kind of grafted into the grid uh, about 40, 50 years later um, when they realised, you know, Wow, this might actually get built up. Also, it's when parks were becoming fashionable. Then the kind of the kind of, sort of close of the introduction is this little uh, um, exploration of the first New York World's Fair in 1853, which uh, was their kind of they had a, a little sort of version of the Crystal Palace, and they had this big um, needle-shaped tower called the Latin Observatory. And um, there is this celebrated event, which is um, the unveiling of Elisha Otis's lift, where he did... Um, safety elevator. The safety elevator. He did this very... I mean, it's one of the great pieces of... Uh, it's one of the great light project launches of all time, isn't it? The, uh, <laughs> the like, here's my elevator. I'm going to cut the cable and it doesn't fall down. You know, which obviously sets, sets the stage for the possibility of having buildings which are bigger than you might want to walk up the stairs to he kind of observes also that the 1863 World's Fair and the probably better remembered um, 1939 World's Fair share this iconography of a big needle and like a big round, like a big sphere, kind of big kind of round thing, which is, which he that like endows with... I would say like, mystical properties. Yeah, they're kind of symbol. There's a it's symbolization. Like it talks about it as if it's like the auburn rod of some monarch or something. Well, it's a symbolization, isn't it? Like it's a symbolization of uh, he's he he kind of glosses it as a like symbolization of the two things that New York architecture are, are, is is going to reach towards, which are being as high as possible and also containing as much as possible, which obviously are the yeah the properties of the uh, of the the needle and the sphere. I think the things that we said about the first thing you can say about the second thing. Yeah. You can imbue the sphere and the, and the tower. Yeah. And the idea that the tower is has no 
um, volume and lots of height. Yeah. And the sphere has the maximum amount of volume. Yeah. And then you can, you can sort of describe these as special things and then say yeah. they have a special spiritual significance. But it's projection, right? <laughs> Like, I don't know spiritual, and, but yeah, they're like concept. They're they're like okay. kind of conceptual. Um, they're like ideal. They're yeah, well, they're like metaphysical. I would say yeah, more okay. than spiritual. Yeah, but, okay, like yeah. dystic. Yeah, uh, but whatever. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, there's a picture which is a literal projection. Yeah, of one onto of the other. one onto the other. Yeah, something uh, something we'll see go through is that there's a quality in the images and there's a quality in the paintings. Um, which is that they are taking reference images and kind of recontextualizing them or like putting like very few images come from nothing, but they're all radically reassembled or repurposed. Mm. So the first chapter uh, and really where he wants to locate the start of Manhattanism is actually not on the island at all, but um, just uh, around the corner the entrance of uh, new york harbor on coney island which is um uh i mean it's not even really an island to start off with but they they turn it into an island by digging a canal and it was initially in the early 19th century a kind of popular place to go for like a picnic out in unspoilt nature and then latterly a kind of place with resort hotels for the better sort of person and then with the arrival of the railway turns into a mass resort and what he's really interested in is the development of these three great uh kind of early fun fair theme parks in um right at the end of the 19th century which are steeplechase park lunar park and dreamland the subtitle of the chapter is the technology of the fantastic and it's kind of about the simultaneous development of like architectural and experiential fantasy and the possibility of experiencing all kinds of crazy and hitherto undreamt of things, but also with the integration of things that are being, you know, the newest technology and things that are being uh, developed of all kinds. Tone, I, I don't think we've spoken about enough. This copy of the book that I've got is not a very good one. There's different editions and we don't have the original. The original one is, is a, quite expensive. It's quite expensive but the layout <laughs> but the layout is better. Yeah. They used to have a first edition of it in the in the library at UCL but a member of staff stole it. We'll see them in hell. <laughs> um, Looking down through the little Looking down from Calvinist heaven. Yeah. Yes, um, I'm not sure about that. But we yeah. will we will we we shall see. But it's not the tone I mean, the tone here starts is quite strange. Coney Island is the fetal Manhattan. He describes Coney Island as a clitoral appendage. Yeah, I thought that. The, I mean, the, through the book, actually, the the kind of sexual metaphors. Yeah. Well, he kind of. I, I guess if you want to turn up the volume on uh, your metaphors, yes, that's one direction. A, a you clitoral can go appendage in. at the mouth of New York's natural harbor. Or what? Yeah. What's the other one? Yeah. A fetal. It's a fetal Manhattan. They're all like they're, they're aphorisms. He obviously has a gift with language. Like that's that's part of his thing and he is kind of constantly provoking constantly provoking and constantly kind of creating these these like engaging and seductive uh sort of taglines but also hopelessly things. over the top they like are sort of so far beyond over the top yeah coney island is sort of pro described mm. as if it is a psychosexual expansion of a sort of schizophrenic city yeah like 
the nature of the heart of the city is insane and it yeah. throws out uh, yeah. energy of masses washed up upon the shore of this glitteral appendage of uh, yeah uh, okay so this here's um, a, here's, a, here's a description uh, of the of the railway <laughs> reaching Trony, coney island it says tracks they're all these like short paragraphs with like a, a title tracks the battle becomes critical when the first railroad reaches the middle of the island in 1865, its tracks stopping dead at the surf line. The trains put the ocean front finally within the reach of the new metropolitan masses. The beach becomes the finish line for a weekly exodus that has the urgency of a jailbreak. But the need for pleasure dominates. The middle zone develops its own magnetism, attracting a range of special facilities to provide entertainment on a scale commensurate with the demand of the masses, in a laughing mirror image of the seriousness with which the rest of the world is obsessed with progress. Coney Island attacks the problem of pleasure, often with the same technological means. Yeah, um, it's got a bit of it's it's got a bit of like high fluting, ridiculous prose. It's also got a bit, I thought, of the like super positive American voiceover f- uh, like propaganda film. You know, like around the kind of New Deal and Second World War. Yeah. Like future is this thing. Yeah. Now ten thousand of these. Uh, so the chapter like d- d- details like a lot of these uh, pleasure apparatuses, doesn't it? There's the the barrels of love, the tunnel of love, shoot the shoots the you know the barrels of love are like big big rotating cylinders where you go in and fall over on top of each other and the they make a mechanical steeplechase where you can ride a mechanical horse around a what looks like a very long track in fact there's a very early water slide where you all go down in fact a whole succession of them yeah in yeah this seems to be one of the most enduring ones shoot the shoots well they're all called shoot the shoots yeah shoot the shoots there's a lot many the multiple shoots shoots the <laughs> shoots the shot shoots the shot yeah it's a big, log flume big yeah but in like quite a big boat i think i would say this section describes the thing that's kind of at its core is that there are a, f- a number of entrepreneurs on sites competing yeah with uh to provide on this like former kind of parkland at the beach cheap thrills yeah and they're operating there's a railway that comes in and it really feels a bit like, you know, Sim theme park or something. They're all right next to each other. And so yeah. there is a rapid one-upmanship of different attractions. Yeah. Things that can attract people from the city. And there are mechanical rides. There are architectural fantasies. Lots of yeah. towers made of papier-mâché and cardboard. Yeah. Performances. as w- And they're sort of trying to find work out you know they've got the first roller coasters and things they're evolving yeah. what a theme park is and there are also things that are not so present yeah uh in um a contemporary theme park midget villages uh rooms where you where they would uh incubate premature children was a popular attraction yeah i don't sure he talks about it but in i think in luna park they had an elephant I can't remember what it did. He does what, mention it, yes. Where they where they execute the elephant for um, they stage the execution of the elephant as a attraction. I can't remember what they decide to execute it for. It's committed some kind of okay. crime. So the tone is uh, of this place is very strange. I mean, yeah, and it, lively, and at the same sense, um, it's definitely immensely uh, uh, like the description of this comparatively short period of time. Yeah. Um, really, I would say it's. 10 years before the first world war and 
a little yeah. bit beyond that maybe yeah uh, as the kind of heyday of these competing attractions which which blend a number of things that Rem Cool House is very in favour of, such yeah. as diversity, concentration, technology. Yeah. It's all about you know the new electric light, flimsiness, yeah. theatricality. Novelty above all. Like no, no like yeah. novel experiences and the the application of like imagination to the creation of totally novel sort of spa- spaces and experiences for um, um, for the people to people to enjoy. Um, the, the the kind of chronology the chronology that he relates is like there's a the first park which kind of arises a bit organically, and then there are two which follow it which are built kind of as a whole with a cohesive concept. So Steeplechase Park is the first one. There's Luna Park, which is where there's like a whole there's a whole kind of fantasy concept where it's actually a city on the moon. And it's they really push the boat out with these like l- like hundreds of hundreds of um uh of little kind of decorative towers. And then there's Dreamland, which is uh um, I can't remember. I mean Dreamland I think it's has lots of Well, I mean I mean I think he Dream, describes Dream, Dream the Land. themes as if they were very rigorously applied. But in fact Dreamland has a sort of slightly sea theme. Yeah. But really, the theme of all of them is sort of fantasism, and the park itself are fairly architecturally simple. They're they're often basically a kind of they're more simple, I would say, than a modern theme park. Yeah, and they're smaller. Yeah, um, it's almost like a U. Yeah, with with the beach at one end, with some with a couple of pleasure piers. Yeah, and then around the edge of the U are different attractions. Yeah, so you've got. Um, a roller coaster, premature babies to look at. Mm. Pre- rather prophetically, in Dreamland, you can go and watch firemen f- fighting a staged fire. Yes, you can also watch um, biblical creation. Mm. Yeah. Yes, or the country where everyone is a dwarf. Really weird. Yeah. So, I mean, he and he concentrates on some aspects. Of it. I mean, the thing that strikes me is, is it's a very tabloid sensibility, isn't it? What, the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're for the masses. Yeah, they're fun. There's a big building built like an elephant. I don't even know where that was. The the other thing which it, it, he kind of stresses is, you know, like electricity comes in uh, during this period, and they uh, bring in uh, they like floodlight the beach so that you can swim all night, and um, they uh, have these incredible light show light shows or kind of light displays. And all of these were essentially destroyed in pretty short order. Dreamland burnt down. Uh, Luna Park. Steeple Jay's Park carried on for quite a long time, I think. Yeah. But the other two... Um, were gone, certainly gone by, completely gone. The early by 20s. Yeah. Uh, and a lot of what was left was kind of uh, er- erased and prettified in the early sort of post-war period. But for, so for him... It's the technology of the fantastic. What does the technology of the fantastic mean? It means you've got technology. You've got, uh, I mean, one of the things he's really interested in, he likes sort of spins about the theme parks is that they tend to have kind of a grid. They tend to have like a kind of technological infrastructure, which looks a lot more like a modern building. They'll have it their own telephone exchange. They'll have um, a kind of electrical grid. They'll have lots of sort of mechanical ways for 
doing various things. You know, as a theme park has to have, they have to have, you have to have a, a sort of infrastructure to support these enormous numbers of people and the kind of get people moving through the rides and things like that. Um, but what, which for him is sort of prophetic of uh, the skyscraper and kind of later massive modern buildings. There's also a lot of showmanship. Yeah. So later on in the skyscraper, there's a lot of show. Well, there's a lot of selling in real estate, isn't there? Yeah. But there's even more direct selling in selling an attraction. You yeah. really have to grab people's attention. Yeah. And the great speed of the rise and fall of these things is interesting too. I can see how Coney Island is very exciting for Rem Coolhouse, who likes contradiction, density, yeah, all these things. And then we have to kind of disentangle exactly how it fits into this work on New York. Yeah, well, so it's certainly in his in his manifesto, Coney Island is the ingredients of the skyscraper laid out in a big sort of flat area. Yeah, and that tells you that his idea of a skyscraper is well, possibly more exciting than, than you would initially think from looking at those sterile um, <laughs> yeah, corporate yeah. plazas. Oh, yeah, we'll get to that, though. And then he has a sort of bridging project, which is this, um, this weird proposal someone was making to make, like, an enormous ball-shaped building which seems like a, a kind of pyramid scheme or something. They were raising a I lot think of... It, I think it's not a pyramid scheme. <laughs> it's, a pond- it's a fraud. It's a fraud, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is, it's a scheme whereby <laughs> it's one of the... Before Mr Ponzi invented a, a, a new way of doing a fraud, <laughs> yeah. and before the invention of like multi-level marketing, yeah. you could just have a fraud where you said... Give us all your money. We'll give you loads more money back by yeah. this project. We're going to build this project. And you just take the money yeah. and you go away. You don't have a pyramid. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's what it is. But it does... Speculative fraud. It does generate some kind of quite interesting visuals. These enor- it's an enormous globe-shaped kind of vaguely Eiffel Tower-like building in the middle of the in the middle of the city and he produces some theory about he's sort of this is another one of his globes and he likes the idea of the yeah. i think something that he likes is that the sphere is both notionally super practical because it's got the largest internal volume and architecturally absurd yeah as a building f- form sphere yeah. is like the most it's the most rhetorical and unactually useful architectural shape yeah you can imagine. Yeah. You, you, what do you put on the inside of a sphere? I mean, people keep people. I mean, throughout history, architects keep trying to falling in love with it and trying to make it happen, and it's never any good for anything. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it is very striking. It's so big and conceptual. Yeah. Um, so he, yeah, he says the globe tower. The es- it's the essence of the skyscraper to reproduce the earth and create other worlds. So, so again, you've got this like um, uh, slightly febrile voice of Rem, yeah, uh, picking up what is a couple of uh, slightly silly images for a uh, yeah. I mean, yeah, good. But on this him. Is, yeah, this is classic thing to like take like this sort of this this uh, strange um, and ultimately a very little consequence kind of moment in not even really architecture, like kind of real estate speculation um and give it the kind of cons- conceptualization and sort of theory heft 
that people have traditionally endowed, you know, like but, I mean, Ludwig Hilbersheimer or Luc Corbusier with. That's it. I mean, the, one of the great moves in this is to yeah. say that the real hucksters and charlatans aren't fraudsters and um, like property pump and dumpers. Yeah. It's European modernists. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and actually, the real truth of theory is in fraudsters and uh, property speculators. Yeah, the beautiful, the real beautiful souls. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, to, to invert these two things, that's yeah. the kind of the game. Yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, there's bits that I don't think we've got time to talk about. There's a good bit. I enjoyed the bit where he. There's a long bit on um, Gorky going to visit Coney Island as a like socialist correspondent and being horrified yeah. by anything. And I think that, you know what, I mean, something that's going on in the book is like, there's a lot of sort of subtextual needling people that Coolhouse thinks are annoying. And one of the groups of people he thinks are annoying are like Marxist architectural historians. Um, and um, <laughs> I kind of think that this is... And the European <laughs> avant-garde in general. The, um, yeah, yeah, they're... Um, uh, and they are annoying. He's definitely, he's kind of, there's a, there's a, there's a sort of... But um, he can be annoying too. I'm, we're, yeah, we're not here to judge who's annoying and who's not. Like. <laughs> you can, it's okay to be annoying sometimes. Yeah. Um, so there's a certain amount of that going on. Anyway, right. Yes, we? but I mean, that, that that's, it's a kind of echo of what we're going to see in the future, yeah. isn't it? Gorky goes to Co Coney Island and yeah. doesn't like it. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't think it's really for him. I don't think it's really for us either. Yeah. So the skyscraper... Uh, the tag, the kind of tagline for which is the double life of utopia. Now, I had a question. You yeah. might know more about this. My feeling is an awful lot has been written about the origin of the skyscraper. Oh, yeah. Like books and books and books. This is an extremely well-studied topic. And I was wondering, how much is this another reframing? I mean, this is a complete... This is where the history of, of something which is really known yeah no i would say that the history quote unquote here is at its most tendentious like i think that he, like here's a word which i don't think occurs in uh delirious new york at all which is chicago no is, <laughs> like if you were going to do an orthodox uh history well, so of the skyscraper really of what skyscrapers are is it's it's not what they are actually no no if you're doing the um, the actual actual history of the skyscraper, like yeah, the action's all in Chicago and the these kind of early buildings which are getting higher and higher and higher. Before the financial, they had a financial crash in the 1890s, which I think slowed it all down a bit. Um, and then you have famous buildings like Burnham and it's by it's by Burnham and Root, isn't it? The Monadnock Building, which is the like last and tallest non steel frame building. Um, where they build it all out of brick and it has this very, very peculiarly, incredibly thick walls as a result, which is sort of... Yeah. This is a proper subject uh, of architectural history, but it's... Um, and and but, I think in yeah. America, and probably in America of the 1970s, an extremely important and revered yeah. one, Yeah. the origin of their sort of particular unique contribution to yeah. world culture... Yeah. A, a unique American well, contribution to world culture. <laughs> they got a one or two others. They have many others. <laughs> I, I just meant one. Yeah. And he completely sidesteps it. Yeah. It's a very, yeah, because the, his story is all about New York and it's about the particular genius of Manhattan. And, anyway. uh, and also his idea of what a skyscraper is, is nothing to do yeah. with how you make a big, tall building. Yeah. Make a big, tall building work. It's, um, 
No. It's, the, it's about how you dream about making one. How you kind of come to possess this like immense kind of sexual dynamism to want to make one happen. <laughs> well, also and the particular qualities that they not have the, in not the, Manhattan. It's not about boring old engineering and how you like join a column onto it. Yeah. How, onto yeah. a beam and all that. So the um the kind of early skyscrapers that he's talking about at this point are mostly concentrated down the bottom end of Manhattan. So there are this kind of rush of early skyscrapers that get built uh, around and just after the turn of the century and his origin story for where um where skyscrapers come from is not in the steel frame or in the proper property market necessarily but in these kinds of yeah these kinds of like dreams there's this an illustration uh which is actually on the front of a guidebook with the, this kind of crazy fantastical cityscape and there's this funny picture of Lots of houses on top of each other in a, a kind of steel-framed stack. Rem's first sort of skyscraper, which he thinks is 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 the most primitive. Mm. We've got a kind of a hierarchy, yeah, like we'd have in Ruskin or something. Yeah, the most primitive form, the pre-form, is you get the site plan, yeah, and you extrude it yeah. to the maximum commercially viable number of floors. Yeah, and the kind of classic version of that is Burnham and Root's um, flat iron building. Which is uh, we're looking, exciting because it's triangular. We're looking at a very early, a beautiful, very artistic photograph of it in the smog. They are either straight-up extrusions of the site, yeah. or extrusions with sort of uh, adjustments to the plan to mean that light can get sufficiently yeah. far into the plan, rather more generously than we do now. Often, there's a kind of a controversy about these buildings in New York because people think that you shouldn't be allowed to just export ex- extrude the site straight up. By concentrating a lot of building in one spot, there are bad things that that building does to the area around it. Yeah. Um, specifically, the light of the area around it. Yeah. Like, it destroys local amenity yes. by having that much mass to in one place. A, a planning-ism. The yeah. person who does it first kind of takes some of the amenity from the surrounding site with people proposing bigger and bigger buildings yeah it's acknowledged that some restriction on the right of people to endlessly expand upwards also if you extrude up on the site on all sides you're kind of if your neighbors build up to or do the same thing next to you they yeah. block all your windows yeah it's a problem which is a problem yeah so he, this is this is obviously the this is the most obvious, like early skyscraper typology. He thinks there are, there are two others which are which are kind of visible. One of which is basically just building. There are people just building big towers as a landmark. What so am I reading? The classic. Uh, <laughs> what are you reading? Total architecture. Sturrett's anti-humanistic proposal reveals the essence of the Manhattan Project, a diagram of temperature and atmospheric regulating tubes that is supposed to emerge from oak panel partitions complete with fireplaces. The outlets of this psychomasmatic battery are key to the scale of experiences that range from the hedonistic to the medical. Yeah. The irreversible synthetic pervades every corner. That's a sort of um, typical example of prose. Yeah. Coolhas says that there are these, there are sort of three initial kind of typologies in, yeah. the, in the Manhattan skyscraper. 
There's multiplication, site extrusion. There's what he calls a lighthouse. And his example of that is Madison, the Madison Square Gardens, where they built a kind of 30-odd story tower as a big beacon landmark. And the other one is what he calls an island, which is where they build... They have the site, but they just sort of build a little tower on a bit of it. And I well, guess the Singer building is also, would also have been an example of, of that. Well, the significance of the towers yeah. is that if you own a whole block and you develop some of it to a low level and some of it to a big level, you're beginning to develop a different sort of thing from yeah. an extrusion of the site. Yeah. It's something which can uh, both maximise the amount of floor space yeah. maximize the silhouette yeah. and the sort of visual. I mean, you sell in real estate. Yeah. Selling is important. And it also can coexist with its neighbors. Yeah. This idea that you can have an impressive landmark, which which has got a lot of a lot of mass at the bottom and then a big tower, is yeah. a kind of different way of inhabiting. You don't just have to do one thing. Yeah, so that's the metropolitan life building that we're looking at on that one. So the significant what these yeah. things are is yeah. the big building is pretty obvious. You extrude it. Yeah. Or you can have a tower and a small building, yeah. a low building. Or you can sort of have the tower and the low building kind of integrate with each other. Yeah. His kind of thesis is all about... So he's, he basically says the Woolworth building is the first integration of these ideas into something which is sort of all of them at the same time. And, the, you know, for people not looking at the picture, it's like extruded up a certain way and then it gets a bit, then there's a bit of it which is, um, is, uh, is a kind of tower section. And the extruded bit is pretty high, like I don't know how many stories that is, about 20. And, yeah, and then the tower bit is also quite large, but it's also quite successfully formally integrated you've got this like strong vertical piers which kind of run all the way through and you've got uh this kind of like way of stressing the corners which creates a a, a kind of um visual it's, continuity it was strange for me reading <clears throat> this because you would think someone who's so interested in architecture would or actually wouldn't think it in the case of Uncle house but a different person who also wasn't doing a conventional history of skyscrapers might say, might talk about how this thing functions formally, which is that if you took the tower off the top, it would still be a tower. Yeah. And the tower on the top functions to generate prestige and silhouette. Yeah. You can put some expensive stuff in it, but really the floor plan is all in the big fat bulk at the bottom, yeah. not in the, 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 the fine spike on the top. But the fine spike on the top makes it very tall and very prominent. Yeah. Um, and you can do some sort of prestige with that. And, and so the way that functions as a bit of real estate is, is, is pretty clear. I don't think I'm super interested in that. It's slightly hard to work out what he is talking about because a bit, of the, a bit because it's all hiding behind this thick, goopy prose. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's this, yeah, it's sort of, so there's a bit, I think it's around this bit, he talks about, there is like four, so American architects at this time were basically all educated in the Beaux-Arts, um, but then happened to be working on this type of building that has no place at all in the classical understanding of architecture. Like, there's no place for the skyscraper in in that sort of historicist, like, 
structure um, and they obviously find a way of making it work but there is a real uh, stylistic problem which he does talk about a little bit he says like that, that problem he did, does talk about like you know there's a pro- the buildings are absolutely massive but they're not monumental in yeah. the sense of uh, they don't like properly and you know you do see this in the there's a book which I've which is of kind of advice for students, American students at the Beaux-Arts, which I've got somewhere around here, and they, which also has some kind of student projects. And one of them is like a monumental scheme for Lower Manhattan. And it's an obelisk that's like 500 metres tall with no windows. And it's a kind of, you can see it as this very obvious like attempt to work out a proper way to create a kind of monumental order in this in this thing which has already arisen anyway that's like a silly tangent yeah but, but, but like but, but i mean what i mean he, but the, doesn't quite say these are products of the demands of real estate okay you've got to just sell all these units stacked on top of each other uh that's a commercial block it's no, because he wants to treat it as architecture. What he does say is that this, he, he says that this is a, ra- a radical, morally traumatic break with the conventions of symbolism, which, in which the building is like celebrating only the fact of its disproportionate existence, the shamelessness of its own process of creation. And I think what but, that is, is he's talking about the, the bits of Beaux-Arts that are stuck on the big yeah. tower block. But he's very excited by the transgressiveness of this in terms of like architectural ethics or kind of an architecture of like values people are doing something which properly speaking is kind of immoral in terms of of uh, the the ethics of the architecture at the time but it's giving birth to something new and exciting through that act of of like transgression it's very i mean this is very much his his sort of thing isn't it it's like yeah i mean this feels like a it's like rock and roll, isn't it? Like it's trying to make architecture rock and roll. It's trying to make it. It's trying to make it punk. It's trying to find yeah. a way for. I know. didn't find that super convincing. <laughs> well, um, you, the the, but he does have. So I mean, he's sort of discussing the way in which the architects of the time struggled with putting kind of Beaux Arts details and bits on big extruded repetitive lumps. Yeah and how they didn't think that was the most beautiful thing. Yeah. And in a way, these towers looked at on their own are not the most beautiful thing. It's like one extrusion, even one that's quite well judged is a sort of extrusion on top of another extrusion. Yeah. They're interesting in that they're big and monumental. Yeah. The Beaux-Arts stuff on them doesn't contribute very much at all. It's sort of nicety. And then, I mean, the flip side of it is also that you can have these interiors which don't have any particular reference to the exteriors, which he talks about as as this kind of radically new development, so that you have um, these sort of strange, again, kind of theme park-like fantasies on the inside. He talks about these, um, this, like, r- uh, restaurant and club design called Murray's Roman Gardens, which is this sort of classical fantasy uh inside i actually can't remember which i don't think this is inside a skyscraper in fact but it's um what he thinks is this kind of not very novel idea of like um a sort of totally floating kind of interior fantasy thing which is which is inside an essentially like arbitrary envelope and that one yeah one one is the inside a sort of low but the ideal thing that rome cool has would like this to be is that you have a, a, a a skyscraper tower and within that tower, you have, like his diagram, which is kind of of country houses all built differently on 
kind of gantries of a big steel frame. Yeah. The interior is completely different. It's completely arbitrary what's in it. Yeah. And it can have a fake image of Rome in the middle of a skyscraper. That you can have a completely enclosed interior in which anything can go on and it can be very different, like not make any sense. The examples he gives are not quite actually... He's kind of having to ram them quite hard into the box that they don't fit in. But that's the case he's making, which is that they're experimenting at this time with with an architecture of fantasy where where you can go where you have a city on the outside which is kind of made of these big masses and then inside there can be anything it's a yeah. jungle inside these towers they're full of uh roman orgies and uh, yeah. uh, and interior forests and not at all full of rows and rows of identical offices yeah okay so the yeah the big break is the adoption of this zoning law where essentially they don't want any more of these buildings which rise straight up off the street for um tens and tens of stories and i think this is broadly still how the size of buildings in new york is is regulated you have a, a notional kind of zoning envelope for the block it's got a certain I mean, it's height. quite generous yeah it's still quite big. And then these are drawn up in a, uh, this famous series of illustrations by a guy called Hugh Ferris, who's an architectural painter of the time, which are very amazing, dramatic images in which the permissible envelope is visualised as this sort of prismatic form lit by crepuscular light thrown into dramatic light and shadow. Uh, there's a sort of evolution as well in which he kind of hypothesizes about how the form of a building will evolve out of these new envelopes um, into broadly like ziggurat language. Yeah, essentially the New York block is, um, well, several times wide, you know, it's a rectangle that's like three square or something like that. Yeah, they're I mean, long. they're not all they're the same. Long. Yeah, The envelope allows you, allows you to go vertically up for a while and then you have to go back at an angle... I mean, quite a steep one. Yeah. Yeah, it's more than 60 degrees, maybe. Yeah, I don't, yeah, it looks like sort of 70 degrees, doesn't it? And it's... there are various restrictions which sort of serrate that edge. Yeah. And then the core of the block is allowed to be extruded indefinitely. Yeah. And the first step of just drawing and rendering that envelope in light does something very Coolhousian, which is that it says, we've got a law which, like his notion of the grid, you know, we're going to extend this out to the end of the island. Yeah. We've got a, a an envelope which is infinitely tall. Yeah. And then at the base has a very complicated, craggy form. Yeah. And that immediately begs the question of what do you do with a city full of these? This yeah. thing is massive. And... Yeah, it's almost with, with that. I really don't feel that he's having to reach. No, I, I think the heavy lifting is really being done by the renderer. Yeah, in a way, like actually, his reading of the grid is like reading the grid through the logic of of Hugh Ferris. Yeah, in reverse, like it's um. Yeah, I mean, what, in, what in Fer- Hugh Ferris, who is this architectural renderer, he actually has found someone who does have yeah a wild utopian vision, if not utopian, a wild megalomaniacal vision yeah. for how the future can be, which is that you just the first thing you do, okay, that's the limit. We will just maximize it. yeah, and yeah. then from the maximum, 
you rationalise. It's really, it's almost like a reading of, it's like a generative reading of the, the zoning diagram, isn't it? It's like, yeah. like this is, these are the, these are the parameters and this is, uh, you know, this is what the building will end up looking like based yeah. on, a, on a kind of... And there are, there are various stages. Yeah. So it's generative, but it, it like takes as its basis, essentially, the maximum permissible form. Uh, and the first approach is rationalising that yeah. to a single block. Yeah. You can kind of, okay, so we've got to kind of make this into more of an architectural shape. You yeah. can make it into more of a ziggurat. It's probably going to have... Yeah flat bits it's as if it's kind of it's as if it's becoming architect like it's as if it's becoming kind of pragmatic from the bottom up yeah like the bottom bit is being sculpted and these kind of creating these kind of uh cutaways to let light deeper into the plan and things like that so he has this proposal for the for the single site which is done in four steps and ends up with yeah a building which is like a kind of massively tall version of um I like this pen- the penultimate step when it's like super steppy <laughs> yeah which is where you just make into floor plates yeah except for the he doesn't quite have the daring to he does two things he kind of makes it into floor plates so everything's yeah. got flat roofs and then he puts a top on the infinite tower yeah they look like mm, a, it looks you like have a, to put that top of that infinite tower you could have just kept that yeah yeah the tower, tower can't actually be infinitely tall in his view but the, these these bits look like a kind of aztec temple on the, on yeah. the wings don't they it's, uh, and then yeah and then and then it's starting to look rather like uh uh giles gilbert's castle or something yeah yeah it's got a real <laughs> bit of um of uh yeah bankside power station about it but then there's a next step which which is Okay, what if we just make the whole city out of these? Yeah. What if we have a landscape which is just composed of this, not just of these envelopes, but these envelopes rendered yeah. in chiaroscuro charcoal, but as if they were, I don't know, made of white stuff lit yeah. by a spot lamp. So the book, I think it's called The Metropolis of Tomorrow. There's like a short book that Ferris did with lots and lots of these renderings in. It's really great. You can... Um, Maybe we can link to it. It's on. You can get it on archive.org. Yeah, I mean, this looks like a, a like an expressionist utopia or something, doesn't it? Yeah. And it is um, those like crystal chain guys. Yeah. Um, they would have been into this crystal necklace or yeah. whatever it guys. Doesn't feel like a big step from expressionism, does it? Yeah. Like, and it's bigger. Yeah, it's bigger, like and also it's on a grid plan. <laughs> yeah, he's got this idea yeah. of this just huge <clears throat> scale. Like, yeah. Imagine if expressionist architecture also made good you was know deeply authoritarian well, yeah well you like had good gdv like yeah. what made sense was was lendable yeah <laughs> um well i'm not sure that's what this image is about this image no. is really about it's about a dream isn't about it about this really pointy landscape yeah there's some other i don't think i put that many of them in but the, these other great images of like him in his studio looking out at, at this kind of imaginary well i think the one with the like f- did you do you have the one with the figure in the uh, landscape, I don't think like I do. Man, yeah, I don't have it. But it's, we can. We it's, can well, we I can, can describe it yeah. from memory. Yeah, which is that it's a kind of Superman figure, and yeah. he's um, weirdly in a field with a little cottage next to him in rolling hills. But in the background is a kind of dream megalopolis yeah. of these lit yeah. planning forms. Yeah, which are actually jumbled. They're not. They don't quite take on the grid. It really is. It's an assembly of these massed forms in that under that dark sky, which is the void that he's always talking about. Yeah, 
that Rem Coolhouse is always talking about. That is a kind of dream landscape that he thinks is one of the energies that Manhattan is yeah. moving towards. It's a really fascinating um, set of images, actually, which I think like we could definitely make more use of it than Coolhouse does. There's a bit... Um, one of the visions I quite enjoy is this one where the top of the buildings are all kind of like acropolises there you have these um sort of freestanding uh greek temples and then and the also uh the kind of cascading slopes sort of have steps and sort of wide paved areas and things and it's very much like a it's a kind of vision of this sort of like sunlit athenian sort of civic space up on top of all of these of these uh new mega buildings yeah, and that feels to be reaching towards something which Kuhlhaas does acknowledge, but he doesn't want to make the point here. Here, yeah. He wants to make a point about pure energy. Yeah. Um, and this is a kind of point which is going towards a bit like, I guess it feels like a little bit like that sometimes in Tokyo, where where is the ground? You're existing in like different levels <coughs> of this built landscape. And it's a great future vision of that. And in a way, though, there's a problem with that image, and you can see why he didn't use it, which is that it's a Beaux-Arts, a perfectly acceptable Beaux-Arts realisation of what that city could be like. Yeah. Um, which runs contrary to Rome Coolhouse's uh, take. Um, <coughs> shtick. And then there are various other ones that he talks about. There's, uh, you know, there are people who think that, that the block should sort of be kind of cut away more that really the blocks should be much more consolidated into these kind of point blocks point towers um enabling more of the block to be kind of liberated for parkland and that sort of thing well yeah but um, they're, they're point hmm. blocks but it's it's a long way and it's a crucial distinction from the local busier block and um uh jungle no, yeah no it's not um it's which not is like that, that like maybe the parks are account for 10% of the land, 20% is towers, and the yeah. rest is roads and low-rise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but that's, you know, that sort of concept. Um, well, which has a very different street. Yeah. And then the other, there's this other, this other aspect of the kind of fantasy, alongside the, um, the fantasy of the kind of envelope-maximising ziggurat skyscraper, is this idea that he characterises as Venice, a kind of like Venetian dream of the city to come, which is all about these um, kind of connecting walkways, which are almost, they're almost like a kind of Beaux-Arts version of the of the megastructure or something like this, which comes up in um, people. Streets in the sky. Yeah, yeah. Very, yeah, lots of streets in the sky, lots of like connecting bridges and um, uh, these, I mean, it, these this, things. This are, metaphor, like <clears throat> Venice, the, the water is replaced with... Non-pedestrian yeah. roads and yeah. trains and things, and then there are pedestrian ways, one or two levels of them. Yeah, and kind of sometimes high-level bridges, bridges and uh, the you know these yeah these kind of Athenian roof um, Acropolis rooftops and uh, and he's not uh, unable to criticise this as well or criticise implementation yeah. of this. I, lo I like I love the, these visions. I think are, are are very attractive. These um, there's a guy called Harvey Wiley Corbett who produces um, some of these, as well as actually being an architect. At this point, the skyscraper has kind of become a mature thing. It's this idea. It's surrounded by this idea of this like rich potential and this intense excitement about the future of the city. And there are one or two. Uh, I think we slightly undersold 
these uh, he's introduced the I- the idea of what he calls the lobotomy which is like the fact that the the inside and the outside don't need to be at all like one another and the idea that the inside is this kind of pure space of doing whatever you want and is is kind of disconnected from the necessity of expression uh, or kind of meaningful connection in any respect to the outside and then there's like a second there's a second part of the evolution of the skyscraper which is it kind of moving towards its like early maturity where he's going to talk about three classic kind of skyscraper stories in the in the in the 20s um 20s and 30s but i think we're gonna we'll move that second bit of the skyscraper discussion yeah but at this point yeah i would like to say some like propose some things that he's thinking about yeah well like what the skyscraper seems to be heading towards what it's implied to be heading towards this yeah. point, which is that there's the struggle with Beaux-Arts conscience, which yeah. is that people have been trained as an architectural con- uh, culture designing buildings that look like traditional buildings from before the super dense city. Yeah. And how you express that on a building, or, how, or what that even means. And he does acknowledge that actually that most of what people are talking about in architecture isn't skyscrapers at this yeah. time. In spite of the fact that I'm sure... In the popular imagination of New York at this time, skyscrapers are immensely important. Yeah. But they're not super prestigious. The form of a skyscraper is not an exclusion. It's something where tall masses, blocks, kind of exist with relation to the roads of the block. Yeah. So it has this um, kind of stepping back shape. And it also, for him, has various things which mean that it is multifunctional. Yeah. Where, in fact, many towers can be have principally one function, the ideal uh, skyscraper, I think, for him, is a congested one. And a congested skyscraper is a skyscraper in which a multitude of different activities and movement exist within the building as well as without the building. And yeah. he talks about how in an ideal building, uh, I can't remember who is proposing this, but, you know, you can live essentially the building is a village or a town it can it has employment of different categories living the amenities for the hours of repose it's another kind of dig at at the theories of the modernist city which is which are about separation it's it's a dig at the modern yeah definitely the modernist theory of the city and it's also like a very clear dig so what he calls the culture of congestion this idea that um, each building can conde- contain a multitude of different private realms, kind of often shared private realms, each of which can express its own ideology, each of which can be in a way like a kind of conceptual and ideological like island within the city. And that's all possible because of this idea of kind of smashing everything together. It's a very clear dig at like Marxist historians as well. And there's, but there's as well sort of, as like Robert Moses and like and like motorway planners, right? Yeah, but the, I, he's the, still on the Jane Jacobs side in some ways. <laughs> sure, it's. I think that you know, so like the are a lot of people at this point who are like very preoccupied with the effect of ideology on on the city and uh, trying to locate their kind of architectural response as you know having a certain sort of criticality in its its response to a city which is conditioned by like capitalist ideology and his whole kind of idea of like the culture of congestion is like now we don't need to all like worry about all of that like anything's possible in inside the world of the skyscraper there's room for everything there is this kind of multitude and like this this idea of 
like far from being the most potent expression of uh, the operation of like capitalism, actually, paradoxically, to use a very cool Harzian word, um, the the skyscraper creates the possibility of this uh, like incredible like liberation and um, and like diversity. I mean, that's obviously like not right. <laughs> Yeah. yeah is it is whether it's right the way of right way to judge this book <laughs> i mean it's like you say it's a paranoid reading it's incredibly like extreme and it goes beyond like doing violence to the evidence to you know just kind of do whatever with the ed- evidence is all about making an amazing story and um <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah but anyway that's what if i mean here's something that's useful I know we're wrapping this episode up, but I think a way that I think about it is um, I've never been to America. I've certainly never been to New York. And so it is a fantastical place. It's a place that exists in like films and TV and description. It's the glowing white hot city beyond the shrinking Atlantic. Yeah. Um, And it's, it's a city that's produced so many images of itself. And he is producing an image I, it's not, it cannot possibly be real. Yeah. His skyscraper is a jungle on the, it's like, or or it's like Babylon on the inside. Yeah. It's not cubicles and little flats. No. It's not like. For rich people. No, no, no. I would, (laughs) or it's not like. It's not suspended ceilings, acres of homogeneity. Have you seen the film The Apartment? which is a, a 19, I think it's 1950s film. Anyway, the guy in that works in uh, like a big office in a tower um, and it's, you know, big grid. Everyone has their like calculating machine. Mm. Essentially, like everybody is, you know, yeah. do, 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 adding everything up and then everything kind of calculating, calculating, calculating. I think I might have misremembered this, but I think that in it, the, um, the elevator is the boss's office and he like goes up and down. Oh, like, 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 like <laughs> someone's badger. Yeah. yeah, I think I, I might, that might have made that up. I think I remember that being the case. You sort of see yeah. him like slowly ascending. So... And we will, but we'll end in describing this image, which is that there was a ball held annually at one rather architectural association. Yeah. Um, I forget which one. And normally they were um, with Beaux-Arts topics. But yeah. one year the representation was for sort of modernity or the future and various important architects dressed up as buildings, but they all dressed up sort of as skyscrapers. And even the people who hadn't worked on any skyscrapers dressed up as a skyscraper and then wore their building as a hat on top of the skyscraper. Yeah. Which is a kind of metaphor for... Which is something that Rome Coolhouse is able to make a great play of. Yeah. You know, what all this means. I mean, it's a sort of jolly thing. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, 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 the cries the building guy's got the best outfit, which is made of um, wooden veneers. Uh, and he's sort of dressed in a wizard's outfit made of wood. It looks amazing, yeah. It's um, a good, yeah. Yeah. Um, and look up the image and hold that in your mind until we return. Yes. So thanks very much for listening. Uh, we'll, uh, we will return with our exploration of the, uh, the second half second, of the book, second half of the book very soon. Um, we'll be posting images on our social media at about underscore buildings on various platforms. 
Um, and we'll at some point do some bonus content as well, which is available on our Patreon, uh, which is a crowdfunding platform where you can support the podcast and give us money. Um, all the links to anything that you might want to find are on our website at aboutbuildingsandcities.org. Thanks very much for listening. And good night. Good night.